0: Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine fingered host, Dan Johnson. Bob, bob, bob. Hey, everybody. Hopefully, your week is going fantastically, awesomely, radically. And, uh,. Hopefully that this podcast can put a smile on your face and you can enjoy your work week just a little bit more, whether you're driving in a car, running on a treadmill, stuck in traffic, waiting in line, um, watching your child be born. All these things are perfect places to listen to podcasts, working out, whatever, you know, maybe the wife's chewing your ass a little bit, so you slip in the earbuds so you don't have to listen to her, uh, you know, anyway, that... But if you get in trouble doing that, it's not my fault, okay? You got to take the blame on that one. But today, we have a really cool podcast. Now, what I liked about this podcast was I get to talk with someone who does not hunt in the Midwest, they don't hunt in the South, they don't hunt out West. They hunt in New England, and that's something, that's an area that you really don't hear too much about. Uh, you know, all the focus these days is on big bucks, you know, whether it's in Iowa or Illinois or Kansas or, you know, Kentucky or Ohio, you know, those seem to be the big buck whitetail, the big whitetail states. And, uh, you know, obviously there are deer populations all over the United States. So today's podcast, I actually talk with a guy who hunts in Massachusetts. I can't even say that right so I'll just call it mass and Connecticut so to New England states, and uh, he kind of talks to us today about the terrain of the property that he hunts. Talks about the very high pressure, the uh, the hunter pressure that he has to deal with, and just kind of his a little bit about strategy, a little bit about uh, the property that he hunts, a little bit about the pressure and uh, the rut, and how you know deer deer work through um, these these basically urban areas. So uh, it's a pretty cool podcast, and it's a little something different, and hopefully you guys enjoy this. But before we get into today's podcast, I asked Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras to talk about how important
1: it is to have the right batteries and SD cards. So we talk a lot about this, but... Uh, You know, memory cards and batteries are something that I think are holding a lot of cameras back. And I'd hate to say it, but I think a lot of people that have a bad experience with $100 or so cameras may have had a bad experience with their batteries. Um, Cards, maybe not so important. There was a time of day when cards would give people fits in different cameras. Um, I think most cameras on the market today are smart enough that they can recognize different cards. We recommend a class four or six card card. Um, if you're running HD video or just photos, um, that should suffice for most cameras on the market, but batteries are where things can really get out of control. I actually just wrote a big blog post on this. Maybe we can include in the show notes, but what happens is alkaline batteries are just not made well with trail cameras they're not made to work well with trail cameras as they die their voltage goes down and that causes trail cameras to have problems causes causes your flash to have problems your flash distance your trigger speed your trigger distance all of these things are affected by alkaline batteries as they start to die And most people think that's towards the end of their life cycle, but it actually starts about a quarter of the way into the life cycle of alkaline batteries. Um, Lithium batteries all the way. We talk about that a lot. Lithium batteries will get you the most, not only out of your Exodus lift cams, but all of your trail cameras that you have on the market.
0: Now, I strongly suggest you guys go over and check out exodusoutdoorgear.com. They make a kick-ass trail camera, um, so head over there. Take a look at all the cool things about Exodus, their cameras, uh, their five-year warranty, so forth and so on. And if you guys do decide to purchase a trail camera, be sure to use the discount code 9FINGERS. That's the number 9 followed by the word FINGERS and you will receive $20 off of your purchase. Now, let's get into today's podcast with Jay Murphy all the way from New England. All right. On the phone with me now is Jay Murphy. How you doing today, Jay?
2: Not too bad. How about yourself?
0: I can't complain. You there's a good chance you hear some screaming kids in the background today. Uh my wife's daycare is fired up.
2: All right. Well, don't be surprised if you hear a dog going crazy. She's in the uh crate downstairs. So oh, I gotcha.
0: Well, I tell you what man, first let's start all, let's start this off like we always start a, uh, these kind of podcasts off. Why don't you tell everybody where you're from and what do you do for a
2: living? Um I'm from Central Massachusetts and I'm a correctional officer for the state.
0: Okay. And uh, how long have you been a correctional officer?
2: Uh 2 years.
0: Two years. Okay. Yep. Have you ever had to do, you know, every once in a while in a movie, or I got some buddies who are correctional officers too. They got to do like an extract of a prisoner who is uh, just doesn't want to come out of his cell. Do you, or, or do you have to do that every once in a while?
2: Um, I spent a year on an investigative unit. And so I actually got a couple of spontaneous uses of force with guys that uh, didn't want to <laughs> hand over the drugs. So <laughs> if we're taking them out of the cell. They're already
0: out. Nice. Okay. So uh, you probably deal with some pretty interesting characters, I'd say.
2: It's a whole different world, man.
0: So so tell me a crazy story.
2: Um, uh, well, we focused a lot – when I was on the team, we focused a lot on, like, you know, narcotics and, and gang activity. And um, there was one instance where we were doing a search on a kid because we had informant information that he had uh, drugs on him. And before we could, you know, do a search, he – offered to kind of hand him over. And the same time he goes to hand him over with one hand, you know, outreach to my partner, the other hand, he went to his mouth to swallow something and headbutt my partner kind of at the same time. And uh, I guess training kind of took over and I just kind of suplexed him onto the (laughs) ground and kind of wrapped him up so he couldn't swallow whatever he had and keep my partner safe. And then we ended up getting both the drugs and what he was trying to swallow ended up being a note to a staff member that was bringing them drugs. So it, uh, was a double whammy. We ended up having a bigger bus than we thought we were going to get.
0: Wow. That is nuts. So, so there was a guy on the inside, allowing him to allowing this, this person to get drugs.
2: It was, yeah, it was actually like a uh, I don't want to give away too much here, but it was right. a, um, like, you know, um, medical personnel, not hired uh, by the state. It, it happens a lot. Yeah. Unfortunately in the prisons, you know, they're, right. they're pretty good at dealing with people. Man, that's nuts. That is so nuts.
0: I don't know if I could do a job like that I because I would be that guy who – because I got – my one buddy is a correctional officer, and he starts um, telling me these stories about they they try to be your friend. Like these prisoners are trying to be your friend or – that's what it seems like anyway. But all they're doing is to try to get information to use against you somehow.
2: Yep, they're always moving like two or three moves ahead, so you kind of got to think you know, what's their move, what they're trying to do, and try and be ahead of them. So it's, uh, I mean, to be be honest, the reason I ended up taking this career choice was, uh, was for bow hunting. I can do swaps so I can kind of end up working, you know, a whole bunch of days in a row. And then I get as much time off as, as I worked. So it's, uh, it's give and take, man.
0: Cool. Cool. Well, someone's got to do it, right?
2: Yeah, that's for sure. It's, uh, it's busy.
0: Right, right. Well, Today, we're going to talk about hunting on the East Coast in New England. And, um, you know, I've never hunted anywhere other than Nebraska, Idaho, and Iowa. All right. So the terrain in all those places are different. And that's one thing that I'd like to talk to you about um, on the properties that you hunt. Go ahead and describe what the terrain is, what the timber's like. Is there ag there? You know, walk us through the land that you hunt.
2: Well, the states I hunt, because I live on the border of, like, um, Connecticut and Mass, so I, I'm able to hunt both. And they're both a little bit different, but the the thing about New England is we have a little bit of everything. So we have some ag fields in Connecticut. Um, you know, they're a huge farming area that I'm hunting, so it's a lot of corn, uh, tobacco, things like that. Right. Um, so you, you'll see a bit of that. And then in Mass, it's actually mostly hardwoods, um, not some of it's you know, mature hardwoods and some of it's kind of that in-between state because New England originally was when the people first came here, they just took down the entire, every bit of forest. And so now that we've, you know, now everybody lives in cities, it's all kind of growing into, you know, big woods. So you don't see as many fields in Mass, um, you know, especially because a lot of it, you know, there's a lot of private land. Um, and so people don't, you know, they work in the city and then they go home and they got 10 acres, but they don't really turn it into farmland or put food plots out. They just kind of let it be grass. So most of your deer are really focused in on, um, like acorns and stuff like that instead of crops. Um, we got a bit of swamps, uh, ridges, you know, the, the normal stuff. And then, um, in Connecticut, it's, it's almost, uh, like strips of timber. We had a lot of like pine stands, things like that.
0: How far are you away from the ocean?
2: Um, I'm halfway, like I'm dead center, almost in the state towards the bottom. So it's a good, um, hour, you know, hour and 15 minutes towards the ocean. Um, but if you go hunting out that side, it's, it's kind of a lot different because they got kind of like scrub brush and you know, in that part of the state, the deer numbers are crazy through the roof because nobody hunts out there. And then you go out towards my side and we're lucky if we get six to 10 deer per square mile
0: is that because you have so many hunters out there or is that just the, the environment's not conducive to a high deer number?
2: I think it's a little bit of both. Um, we have a lot, it's only, you know, most of Massachusetts is uh, suburban really, you know, you got your, your, your picture perfect, like Hollywood style, like suburban areas and then, um, some small towns and some woods and stuff, but they, they, because of the lack of agriculture, and they're living on mostly off of acorns, the land can't support as many animals, um, so the state kind of likes to keep them right around 10 to 14 per square mile, but then if you go out towards the Boston area, um, and that's kind of surrounding area towards the Cape, there's this thing called the Blue Hills Hunt, and it's been protected for like 100 years, and they just started letting people hunt it because they had over 80 deer per square mile in like 3,000 like 3, acres, so... It's all over the news out here because the anti's are are all against it. So it's kind of eighty deer per square mile on one side and six to ten on the other. And then you go to Connecticut and that's hit or miss. Um, my main property in Connecticut, I can I can easily hold about you know twenty to twenty five deer per square mile on it.
0: Per square mile?
2: Or yeah. It's, okay. In about a square mile, we'll have like twenty to twenty five deer, um, like a couple of doe family groups, and it's it's usually about twenty twenty five gotcha
0: what about uh now let's talk about bucks for a second what about the the quality the age class of the deer in in the areas that you hunt
2: um so we have a different like species of whitetail compared to like iowa um so they're not as big antlered but they're big bodied um i mean that they're still not like iowa but uh you know a good size buck body wise would be about 200 pounds 180 pounds Um, an antler size, one of my buddies actually shot a 160 this, uh, this November. But for the most part, if you get anything over 120 inches, you're, you're looking at a a really big deer for around here. And what about age class? (laughs) The age class is, uh, there's like no middle ground. We don't really see a lot of four-year-olds. You'll see a lot of, um... Like spikers, you know the one-year-old, two-year-olds, and then there's this huge jump where all of a sudden it's either you know five and older. Um, everything in that middle ground kind of just doesn't exist because of you know hunting pressure.
0: Right. So the smart ones survive, and everything
2: else is is shot. Oh yeah, if, if they if they get past that that four-year-old mark, they can you can almost count on them dying to old age before they get shot. Right.
0: So kind of going back to terrain again. Do you guys have any like rolling hills and elevation change or cuz for some reason when I think of you know something like Massachusetts that is close to the ocean I I kind of think it would be kind of flat is that the case?
2: It's not um okay. because we had glaciers uh you know thousands thousands of years ago uh we have a lot of rolling hills and uh like ridge lines I mean they're not you're not talking hundred foot inclines on a ridge, but you, you'll get like the 30 foot, you know, changes and it's actually more hilly than anything. Right.
0: Okay. So what, what are the deer doing on, on these, these properties? Are they, I mean, are they coming down to, let me back up a a second. There's a lot more people out East. So I take it that the portion, the land is broken down into more parcels, meaning, you know, 10 acres here, 10 acres there, 20 acres, what out there is considered a big piece of property?
2: Um, a big piece of property, you're looking at, you know, like 300 acres or so. Okay. Um, a lot, you know, a lot of guys out here, you know, we kind of have to adjust your style a little bit. So a lot of guys seek out little pockets. Um, sometimes it's right behind a couple of neighborhoods, you'll see, you know, 15 acres that you can sneak in with a bow Um, if you catch private property with someone, you can, you know, get lucky and get, like, I have a piece in, in Douglas mass, that's 630 acres that I've had for about 10 years, um, that I've got permission on. So it's, it really depends on kind of getting lucky. And then surprisingly, the state of Massachusetts has, according to, um, the department of like environmental, whatever it is, um, they have 300,000 acres that are, publicly accessible for hunting in the okay. state.
0: So what's the, so does that mean private ground that is, has permission or is that straight up public ground?
2: That's straight up public ground. Yeah. Okay. Um, you your like wildlife management areas and then like your state forests, like the town I grew up in has an enormous state forest that you would just get lost, walk for days in there. Right.
0: Okay. So now, You know, you got, you got a lot of what for, for that state, you probably have a good chunk of private or a public ground, but you also have a higher population. What is the, what's the pressure like on, you know, for bow hunting and then what's the pressure like for, for gun hunting?
2: Oh man. Um, so even with bow hunting, there's a lot of pressure because there isn't a ton of like most guys don't want to hunt state land. Because it's so big um, and it's so pressured during gun season. And even with the bow, guys don't even like going out there, it seems. So you end up kind of congregated in, in little pockets with everybody. But, um, for instance, even on the private land that I have, there's 15 other guys that hunt that 600 acres. Um, that's bow hunting. So it's it's very congested, but um, you're almost always bumping into people. There's really no going out in the woods and not seeing people unless you have like sole exclusive permission on private a public you're bumping into somebody somewhere
0: right so on that on that uh you said you had 600 acres and you have that split up by to about 15 guys oh yeah okay and that's private ground though right yes it is so how's that work uh because i share i share a piece of property with three other bow hunters and that's my my main farm anyway and it's we don't ever really communicate with each other really about stand locations. We all kind of just hunt where we want to hunt. And uh, my stand locations that I choose to hunt are not necessarily near their stand locations. However, we do have one guy out there who doesn't care who's there. He doesn't care where your tree stands are located. If he's going to go hunt, he's going to go hunt. And cause he's been there for 25 years and, Hell, he's you know, he's been there the longest, so he gets to hunt where he wants when he wants. But do you communicate with those fifteen other people, or is it just first come, first serve type of deal?
2: It's um it's whoever puts in the most time. I mean, we don't communicate, but like if you've got a stand somewhere, um guys aren't gonna put a stand up next to so yours, they'll just sit in your stand, uh, if you're not there. The hunter etiquette side of stuff around here is a little uh it's kind of like our attitudes, you know, the New England attitude, the Boston attitude. It, it applies to hunting too, unfortunately. So guys kind of, if they see your stand there, they're going to sit in it. And they don't care if you've got a stand 200 yards away. If they want to put one up, they're going to put it up. Um, but trying to communicate with them, it's hard because around here people aren't a lot of guys. Not everybody, but a lot of guys just aren't as, you know, hardcore about bow hunting. So right. it's a... Uh, they tend to do the things you'd think they do. You know, they sit on, they sit in an area that I would never sit, but that's like the common spot for that you would think would be a good spot. You'll see a stand in kind of like obvious places. A lot of times you won't see guys diving in deep into a swamp or anything like that.
0: Okay. So do you ever have conflict, uh, within a, like, like this year you told me before we started recording you, you hunted like 34 days in a row. Did you, did you have any run-ins with other hunters that maybe there was, man, I was here first, but Hey, no, I got a tree stand already up, man. I'm hunting like any type of, any type of conflict like that.
2: I'm pretty easy going. I, uh, I realized a long time ago, you know, when I was real young, I kind of was aggressive with guys when I'd meet them in the woods and try and kick them out of my spot. But I've learned that you, uh, you kind of win more battles by killing them with kindness. So yeah. A lot of times I just try and take the high road. Um, I I run into more issues with, you know, ethics around here more than anything. You know, you'll come across a bait pile uh, with someone with a blind up or something. And it's kind of like, you know, it shouldn't be there. So then you leave them a note. Um, I'd like to be more aggressive about it, but it just doesn't win you any battles. So it's just a matter of kind of winning them over and, and kind of make them see your side of things and try and convince them that what they're doing is wrong and and get them to move on. You know, uh, we have, I have a big issue with guys trespassing on like the private land around here. It, just cause it's posted, that doesn't mean that guys aren't going to get dropped off by their wife and go in the woods and, and hunt it anyway. Right.
0: Right. Have you ever had a run in with a, a trespasser like that?
2: Uh, just about every season.
0: <laughs> and how do you approach that?
2: Um, So when I first got onto like the, you know, the properties that I use, you, we made sure that everyone that's on there had to have a, a certain permission letter. Uh, cause the mass, the state doesn't give out like a, um, like a set letter you have to have Connecticut does. Um, so we kind of had a letter made up and that way that everybody that was supposed to be out there had the same letter. So whenever I come across someone, it's as simple as like, you know, let me see your permission letter. And if they can't present it, we just say, you know, I'll give you the chance to get out of here. But if you choose to not leave, I got no problem calling the environmental police and getting them out here and have you leave. Cause it's already so many guys out there right they got to kind of protect your own land yeah for sure
0: so in a high pressure area like that what kind of what are you doing to distance yourself and make because I take it you're hardcore you are trying to find the best possible tree stand location you're probably doing what I would assume would be some running and gunning is that right
2: that's the only way I do it, man
0: okay, so you're a running gunner you you're looking for that best spot how do you how do you distance yourself from the rest of the herd?
2: Well, I try to be a ghost i as much as I don't want a deer to pattern me, I don't like to have other hunters hunt um to pattern me either, so I don't like anybody knowing where I'm going, how I'm getting there. you know I'll park a mile away just so people don't even know I'm hunting my spot that day um So because of that, I can kind of sneak in and and kind of get on top of my spots. And guys don't ever even know. I've had guys walk under me because they've never seen a tree stand on that tree before. So it's not as much about getting away from other people. It's just not letting them know you're there. Because if they know that's a good spot, they're going to sit it. Um, So I just kind of run and gun. I I I keep two setups. Um, So that way if I have a spot set that I want to hunt the next day, but I want to hunt a hundred different spot in the afternoon. I'll keep that stand in the truck and I'll just switch out and just kind of rotate them. But it's, um, it's tough staying away from other people.
0: Right. So how do the deer react to that high pressure in the areas that you hunt? Are they, are they used, used to it? I mean, are they used to people? I mean, cause I've talked to, um, uh, let's say I have a, here's an example. My, uh, great uncle, he has deer come out of the state park and eat out of his bird feeder all the time. And his, his neighbor will actually feed them bread out of her hand. Right. So these deer are in a way conditioned to human, uh, run-ins. What, what are the deer like there? Are they used to seeing people on like bike paths or trails or in backyards, but are afraid of hunters? How's that work?
2: um, I don't think deer ever get used to people. I think they don't mind eating from us and and they'll get used to being in your yard and stuff, but they, they know the difference between, you know, someone throwing out apples in their yard and and a guy walking through the woods with a bow, um, trying to kill them. I think, you know, because of scent and things like that, hunters just, our scent's going to be different than someone that's giving them apples, you know? So I think they can definitely differentiate between good and bad almost because we have some, I mean, I've. In some parts of the country, deer can walk through the woods, and they never look up in the trees, but around here, man, they, they seem to always be looking up at all times. They, they they look for more predators in the trees than they do on the ground, and and we have coyotes that are knocking them down all the time, but they're looking for hunters most of the time. Right.
0: Okay. Yeah, I've definitely hunted some farms in my day where the deer were savvy to the uh, the the tree stand hunter, and then I've had other properties where deer don't even – they don't even look up at all as like, kind of like what you were saying where they're almost born with their head up.
2: What what I see a lot actually is you end up jumping a lot of deer because what they'll do is they'll stay bedded down right where they're at. Um, And their hope is that you're going to walk by kind of like a, you know, someone hiking in the woods or jogging or biking, they move with a, with a purpose. Whereas, you know, a hunter, we're walking slow, we're paying attention. So as you're when you're coming up on some deer, if you don't know they're there, if they're bedded down or, or feeding or whatever, they'll let you get right on top of them, and then they kind of decide, all right, nope, this guy isn't what we thought he was, and then they, they get out of there.
0: Okay. All right. So from a with with all that pressure, I mean I have a feeling there's hunters coming in at all sides, like all sides of the timber. So it's almost like they're surrounding the deer. Um, how, how do you determine where a bedding area is and where a food source is? And, and how do you, how do you then pattern a, a deer with all that extra pressure? I mean, is there a lot of nocturnal movement?
2: Um, You'll see him go nocturnal, but I'll, I mean, it's a lot about doing your homework. So bedding, because we have so many different landforms, hills, swamps, some ag, some timber strips, it's, um, they kind of have a lot of options. I mean, and if they're getting really pressured, they'll go right up into the backyards and they'll bed down in people's backyards. Um, so because of that, you kind of, if you're not doing your homework, like between January and March to see where they're bedding at kind of during that October to December, uh, December period, You're going to really, I mean, it took me a long time to really figure out where the buck beds were around here, doe bedding, Um, like on my Connecticut property, it's, I mean, it's on fire during the rut. And it took me a long time to realize that, because I was looking for buck beds and I just couldn't find them. And what I ended up realizing was I have doe bedding everywhere. Um, So once you start realizing that they're using certain parts more than others, because you'll notice walk through the woods like with a light snow on the ground, you'll have deer tracks everywhere. And then all of a sudden they'll kind of just stop, you know, in that area. And you kind of got to look around and be like, okay, why aren't they here? And you look up and there'll be a tree stand and you can see kind of how they've maneuvered around the pressure. So it's, it's a lot of just putting in the miles to kind of figure out what the deer are doing. Um, I look a lot for like paralleling buck trails, you know, intersecting trails. So bucks that are cruising and looking for does, um, find like a, Acorn crop, so acorns are are tough because we have like red oaks and white oaks, and they have different growing periods, so you know when certain ones are going to be ripe. So if you find a tree early in the season, so like August, if you're looking up in the trees, to see which trees have a lot more acorns than others. Um, I'll mark that on, on a map, and then come, you know, time for the acorns to drop, That's I'll be sitting in between a bedding area and those acorns so I can catch them coming to and from.
0: Now I take it there's more than one acorn tree in the timber. How do you know what, which acorn tree to set up under?
2: Um, well, so the red oaks are a little bit more, um, better than white oaks. That's most, we mostly have like black oaks, red oaks and, and white oaks. Um, I've actually, I've actually, I was kind of wondering why deer prefer the white oaks over the red oaks. So I grabbed a white uh, acorn right off one of the trees and I took a bite and they're not that bad surprisingly, but the the red ones definitely are a little more bitter. But, um, so they prefer the white oaks over the red oaks, but the red oaks last longer. So when all the white oak acorns are are turned into mush come December, the red oak acorns are still, you know, decent. So because of the, uh, there's a chemical in them that kind of preserves them. So the deer go back to eating the red oaks come late season. And so you kind of got to just go around, you know, and with your binos and looking up in the trees to see which trees have a ton of acorns, which ones don't. And, you know, every year you're going to get a different, um, mass crop. So some years are really good. Some years are really bad. Um, and even that, you know, some people would assume that having a lot of acorns would be a good thing, but it's actually the opposite. Um, when they have a ton of acorns in a, in a tract of woods there, they don't have to move much. They kind of can just stay in one spot and eat those acorns. They don't got to move. But on years where we don't have a ton of acorns, you get a lot more deer moving through um, like funnels and stuff like that just because they're always looking for the next food source.
0: Okay. So how does that how does that impact buck movement during the hunting season and, and rut? I mean, how hard is it to pattern a deer? Do you, do you use trail cameras at all?
2: I run – I typically try to keep at least ten cameras in the woods at all times.
0: Okay, so first question is: anybody ever mess with them, or do you put them in, <laughs> a, bear, in a bear box?
2: Actually, it's uh, I had a good one this year. We had a we picked a, a piece of private land. Uh, it's probably it's only like twenty five acres, and I put out me and my buddy put out a um, you know one of the new Bushnell cameras. And I like to run video, so we had the video running. And when we checked it, we would seen a couple guys. Uh, on camera one day and we knew it's private land so we were kind of you know I paid attention to what they looked like right well we went back out there two weeks later and the camera was gone so I hopped on the uh the computer and using some investigative skills I showed up at their door about about three hours later asking for my camera back and they tried to deny it at first and and then I kind of just you know talked them into giving it back and they apologized, got our camera back. I don't think they expected anyone to show up at their door <laughs> looking for the thing, but you know, I started looking at parcel maps and who owns what in the area, and anyone right. that goes to the school with a sweatshirt, and I ended, I ended up tracking them down. I think I surprised them. That's nuts. Yeah, yeah.
0: I've had some, I've had some buddies out in Pennsylvania do that uh, this year, where a guy's stealing his trail camera, and he had another trail camera facing down on that trail camera, and that's how he, that's how he used it to, uh, to bust. To bust him. But, uh, well,
2: that's how I run my trail cameras anyway. I don't, yeah. I don't put them at like that belly button height. I always go about 12 feet up and angle them down. And then I take my pegs with me so that way no one else can steal them. Right.
0: Right. So, so then back to like buck movement, I know acorn crop dictates, dictates a lot, but how hard is it to pattern uh, a buck and then to go in and try to, try to kill him are, are they consistent up until that food source is gone or are they just random
2: honestly I think it depends on the buck um they, they all got personalities if you watch them long enough and uh it really depends on them I've had I had a um 130 inch eight pointer that ended up dying old age I found his dead head but I'd have been after him for two years and he was a homebody he stayed you know right in this small little pocket uh, this is right in, in Connecticut, right. and he was um he liked to bed in a strip of this you know swampy timber, in between an ag field and and a you know and um like a stretch of pines, and he bedded there and he never left there. I found six years worth of sheds off of him and then his deadhead right there. I mean he just he was so predictable. And then in that same piece of property, I had a 148 inch double drop time buck that he just loved the west wind. You know, I I, sh- I ended up hunting him and shot at him Halloween of 2014, and I put the arrow an inch over his back. But uh, he was, you know, I could almost hit him with clockwork that I knew he was going to be coming through that stretch of timber if there was a west wind. Um, but then there's other bucks that, you know, they'll disappear for three weeks at a time, and then they'll show up on camera again, and then it's gone for three weeks, and there's almost no rhyme or reason. And every time they show up, they have a different wind, and it just doesn't seem to make sense. So the way I, what I try and do is I I have, I have an Excel sheet and I'll keep track of all of my like buck videos that I have for my trail cameras. And then I'll pull up the maps and kind of think with the wind, how the thermals affect it and see if there's like a, a piece that I'm missing as to why they're using it only when they're using it. Right. And every now and then you'll be able to I kind of pinpoint something like that, and, and then you just wait for that that moment, and you sneak in there, and just hope no one else, you know, boogied it up before you got in there.
0: And that kind of, kind of brings me to when does when does your your hunting season start?
2: So in Connecticut, it's September fifteenth okay. um, every year, and then in Mass, it's like the I want to say it's the third Monday of October. So so like this year was October seventeenth.
0: Okay, so. With all the people who hunt the, the property, it's kind of hard for you to say, well, I'm going to hold off until it's good because it really doesn't matter because there's a ton of other guys coming in and out of that property anyway. So are you hunting from the season open all the way through the season or are you, are you waiting until the buck movement starts to uh, pick up and then starting to hunt?
2: Well, like in Connecticut, the season starts so early that a lot of times the bucks are still on like a bed to feed pattern. Right. Um, so if you're getting them during like daylight hours and that bed to feed, you be, you better move on it because you don't know that they're not going to get shot by like this year. My number one got shot by the neighbor um, in October. So it's if you have daylight movement bed to feed pattern in that September, move on it because you're not going to get another chance. Um, in Mass, um, it's you gotta you gotta be out in the woods. There's no the October lull, all that. It it goes out the window because there's so many people that it's, You just gotta be in the woods. Um, one of the big things I try and do is almost hunt off of other people's pressure. So, if I know guys have their stands up, like a ladder stand on a piece of the property, I'll almost hunt off of what the the other hunters are doing more than what the deer are doing, because I know that other hunters are gonna you know. I don't know. Everybody does, it, but a lot of guys, you know, they smoke and or they want to wash their clothes, or they pet their dog, and then they go out through their tree stand. So they're leaving so much scent. I'll kind of go opposite whatever they're doing, and and hit a funnel that's 200 yards away from them, so that a deer come to me and not them. Right.
0: So is it? Are they are they just going to you know? Hey, we're going to walk this easy route in, and we are going to sit up in this tree stand and we're just going to hunt a couple hours and then then we're going to get down because we're bored because we're not seeing anything or are they going and sitting all day
2: it's it's more the first they those they walk in they take the normal path in they step off 100 yards they climb up into their ladder stand and if something walks by great nothing does then it's the same for them um but they don't typically, you won't see guys sitting all day long. They usually get down, they go get lunch, they go get pizza, and they go back out in the woods. I mean, that's not everybody. There's your, your 1% of guys that are you know, packing in every single day with a lone wolf and throwing it up and, and going that route. But it's a very small percentage of guys that are doing it out here.
0: Right. Okay. So you're running trail cameras, you're trying to, you're trying to pattern these deer. When, does, when do you feel that the rut really starts kicking in out east where you're
2: at so i think we're like two days behind the midwest most of our weather comes off of the great lakes so it kind of hits um like iowa and stuff and then it comes over like new york and then it drops down and on us so it's out of like the northwest um so like any cold fronts you guys get we get them typically like two days later um so because of that i almost noticed by kind of following you know what everybody in the midwest says you know, when the rut's hitting or like lockdown happens, I've, I, after the last couple of years, I've noticed that it, we're almost always two days behind what you're hearing everybody from the Midwest is having. So the two times that I like to capitalize on is a couple of days before and after Halloween. I've always had the uh, the mature guys on, on their feet moving daylight hours. Uh, this year I had, you know, most of my movement on camera was during that time period that big that right at the end of october and then i after that they kind of just disappear they go straight nocturnal and then the week of thanksgiving they'll be back on their feet and again cruising looking for does
0: okay so is there i mean is it is it a pretty consistent rut over the years is it the same all the time uh or is it is there i know i know we talk about on this podcast and the wired to hunt podcast that um you know weather dictates a lot of deer movement but are you are you guys getting the same type of weather conditions throughout throughout your ruts is it i mean is it or is it completely random um, or, do you have some ruts that are trickle ruts and then some that are really hot and heavy ruts? What it's,
2: it's s- totally, it's totally random. So, well, there's a huge factor here. We get a ton of snow when the snow finally hits, we get hammered with it. I mean, you know, 2014, we got like over hundred inches of snow in like a month and a half period. It was crazy. So, but then the last two years it was really warm. So this season it was, you know, abnormally warm, um, during the rut, same with last year and last year the rut seemed to almost have hit later. Uh, I still had bucks cruising for does right at the end of December. Um but it never seemed to have picked up in November, It really didn't get, you know, going until at the end of December last year here. And then this year it was almost like the picture perfect rut right, right on time how it's supposed to be. And then some years it seems like the bucks never get up and chase does at all. It's it's almost like where are they all at? But then other years it's like for instance this season every day from November 1st to I want to say like the 17th or so I could count on seeing at least a year and a half year old spiker chasing a group of does past me at some point
0: right okay and are you seeing when do the when do you you said the somewhere around Halloween but when do the the big boys out there really start the mature deer anyway really start getting on their feet and start putting on the miles
2: I want to say it's that week of Thanksgiving. Um, If you look at like the QDMA charts of like the top reading periods, um, that week is always, you know, a a big week. And so I think what ends up happening for us at least is we'll get a couple of does that pop, you know, late October. And those big bucks will take, the mature deer will take those first. That's why they're on their feet right around that Halloween time is because they're locking down with those few does that pop early. They lock down with them after a couple of days. And then they kind of kick back and relax so they know it's going to be a little bit for more does to kind of pop in and, and keep going so you see a lot of spikers start moving and the younger deer start moving for the beginning of november but then once you get towards the end of november there that week of thanksgiving those does start going back into heat and, and going into estrus and they're back on the big buck that's when they really get up get cruising because they've already you know locked down with the doe, so they're they're ready for more so they, they start moving again right at the end of november
0: So you also mentioned that there's that gap, right? You got your yearlings and spikes and whatnot. then you have a gap where all those deer kind of get shot. And then you got like your five-year-olds. So what, what would you say on average are the, are the hunters in your woods harvesting?
2: Well, I actually, for a long time, I wanted to blame the gun hunters, you know, they drive deer and I, I thought, Oh, they kill all our deer and they're killing all the young ones. But After looking at um, kind of the deer harvest for the state, you realize that it's everybody's killing the younger ones. And and like for Massachusetts, they consider anything over one and a half years old to be a mature buck, which for whatever reason, that's how they do the numbers. And going by that, it's um, it's like 40 percent, you know, most of the I think we had like top highest of we were in the top five for the for the country for year and a half year old, you know, bucks being killed. We're killing all the, anything in that, that middle range, that's what we're killing right away. Um, so it's, it's, I want to say most of what you're seeing is, is going to be those one and a half, two and a half year old bucks getting killed every single year. And then is that, you know, that 10% of guys that are posting the, the five, you know, five and a half year olds.
0: Gotcha. And just for the record, Um, I I took kind of a a little Facebook poll uh, the other week and I'm like, what is considered a a mature deer in your state? And all these people were saying, you know, two, three, three three-year-olds, you know, four-year-olds, whatever. And just to let you know from a biology standpoint that the the skeletal system on a whitetail stops growing after its fourth year. So, technically, a mature buck is a 5-year-old. Now, if you're saying a mature buck is a 2-year-old, well, that's not the case. You only you may only see 2-year-old deer from the stand, then you ha- you don't have very many mature bucks in your you know, from a biology standpoint, a mature buck is a five-year-old. That's when their that's when their body structure, their bone or their skeletal system stops growing, and they start packing on that. You know, they start getting fat. They start getting uh, that really big mature look, and then all the calcium that was going into bone growth now goes to sustaining bones and goes into the antler development. So that's why a lot of people will see a a jump from the an antler size from the fourth year to the fifth year, a, you know, a big jump. Now, I'm not saying that's standard across the board, but when people start talking about, oh, a one-year-old is a mature buck where I'm from. No, it's not. A, fi- a five-year-old is a mature buck where you're from. You just don't have five-year-old deer, and you just don't have mature bucks in your area and i'm not saying that i'm not trying to rain on anybody's parade you know if you shoot a four-year-old if you shoot a three-year-old a two-year-old a one-year-old and you're happy that's awesome but from a mature buck standpoint mature deer is a five-year-old deer that's that's it, my that's my take on it
2: i i 100 agree with you and that's why i was actually kind of surprised because i was going through our um of, you know, environment department on the, on their online little section there look at their surveys and stuff. And when I saw that they counted any deer over, you know, any buck over a year and a half went into the numbers of like, you know, buck kills. I was kind of surprised that that was how they were judging their numbers. Um, because like one of the, you know, that one deer that I had in Connecticut there that ended up dying old age, he was aged out at almost 11 years old. He was actually, his antlers were Declining, he had no teeth left and I'd seen him in person and he had almost like a beer gut. Yeah. I mean, he was like the fattest deer I've ever seen. And, and like, that's a mature buck. I mean, not everything I'm not saying it has to be like 11 years old, but we, there's definitely a difference between the two. And so I think that's part of the problem that we have out here is I, I say it's a, um it's a, dude, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I think
0: you're, you're experiencing what, michigan what pennsylvania what new york and several other east coast states are are seeing and that's just people shooting immature immature small yearling bucks you know because it could be because they want to or it could be because hey i have to kill something with bone on my head now i, I, not- I
2: think it's a, it's the hunting culture right. is, is, that's what it is around here is everyone's some most people are more concerned about being able to just at least put one down, you know, they, they get a deer and to say they got a deer that they'll shoot just about anything that walks by that first deer that walks by, you can just about bet on them shooting it. Right. Um, and, that's and, okay. it's, and it's, and it's, it's okay. But the thing is, it's a culture out here. That's like the mentality. It's, it's you no know, one's trying to change it really either. It's just kind of been this way forever. And it's how people are going to keep doing it. So that's, that's the, that's probably the most challenging part out here is when you tell someone that you passed on, such and such deer that, you know, today, like I passed on a, on a three and a half year old seven pointer because I'd had a, you know, a four and a half, five, uh, or five and a half year old eight pointer. They come through there three days in a row on my camera. So I was waiting for him to go by and I tell people that and they, they look at me like I'm crazy, but it's, that's how it goes. So it, it's more of a, it's like more of a culture thing out here, mm-hmm. um, than anything. And actually it's funny you mentioned Michigan. I would honestly, hearing people talk about hunting in Michigan, I would say hunting in New England is is probably comparable to hunting in Michigan.
0: Right. Just from the straight numbers.
2: Uh, Yeah. For the numbers and like when they talk about gun season and, and the pressure and things like that, it sounds comparable. I mean, the biggest difference would be some guys have food plots and stuff out there, but um, anyone I've ever talked to that hunts in Michigan or hearing, you know, Mark talk about it, it seems like it's, it's probably pretty comparable. Right. Right.
0: So, what 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 about the late season? I mean, after the gun season, you know, happens, when does your gun season kick in out east?
2: So our shotgun season in mass starts usually the like December first to the the fourteenth. So okay. it's two weeks long. Um there's no rifle out here and then it goes right into muzzle loader from the fifteenth to the end of the month. And then um So you Connecticut guys are,
0: you guys are almost similar to Iowa where you get the entire rut really to do bow hunting and the gun season really doesn't kick in until December.
2: Yep, That's Massachusetts and Connecticut. It's, um, it's the 16th of November this year, right? Uh, shotgun slash rifle season. Cause if you hunt on private land, you can use a rifle in Connecticut. So, so, um, middle of November, the gun season kicks in in in, in Connecticut. Right.
0: So what's late season like out there after the gun season, the shotgun season is over. Talk to us about what the deer movement's like, what, you know, what your strategy, does that change?
2: Uh, yeah, it definitely does. So rather than hunting like a funnel or, you know, the downwind side of the doe bedding areas and things like that for the rut, um, we, I have to switch to kind of hunting food sources again, but they're, they're browsing more around here. So they're eating, you know, bark and buds and whatever is on the trees um, and they'll hit the red oaks again, if they're still on the ground, but they're not, you know, they're not feeding the way they were early in the season and they're not chasing does anymore. So you kind of got to go back to what they're doing at the time. So it's figuring out the thermal bedding areas. Cause it gets real cold out here. Um, right. I've had mornings in the stands like 14 degrees and it never gets over 21 degrees the whole day. So if we're cold, the deer are cold, I mean, they're meant for it, but they're going to bed closer to their food sources. So what I try and do is kind of figure out what food sources they're going to be hitting and then either get on those food sources or or get in between them and their bedding. But they tend to bed pretty close to where they're going to be eating for the day come late season. Right,
0: right. Okay. So, I mean, have you had any success in the late season at all?
2: Um, So last year's late season was better. Um, I didn't end up taking a deer late season. I actually hunted mostly, uh, down South last year, uh, because of work. I'd been on the investigative team. I didn't get to hunt as much up here last year as I would wished to. And then this year, um, I didn't see a lot of movement late season. Um, it seemed to have been nocturnal. I was getting it all over the cameras and I was seeing the sign everywhere, but I just couldn't get it moving during the day. And, uh, I think part of that's my fault because every time we were getting like a heavy cold front, I'd have to go back to work, you know, and work a couple days and then I'd get some days off again and the cold front would be gone already. So I don't think it's that they weren't moving. I just think I wasn't in the woods when they were.
0: Gotcha. So then after the shotgun season's over and the temperature starts dropping a little bit, are do you, do you get the woods to yourself or are you still battling other guys?
2: Uh, the numbers are better, but you end up with the muzzleloader hunters out there. So for the yeah. last two weeks of December, it's, it's muzzleloader. And, and there's not as many guys but there's definitely still you know a large increase of uh of, of other guys in the woods but even then the muzzle loader hunters are a little more um i feel like muzzle loader guys are, are in between bow hunters and gun hunters they're that middle ground so they tend to be a little more i, I use the word hardcore you know inter- you know they're, they're big into it they tend to be at least Um right. So they understand what we're, do, you know, what you're doing out there. They're not as they're not out doing drives with muzzle loaders for the most part. For sure. Um. So that they're not really, you know, you're not going to get up in your stand and and get out at four in the morning and set up your sticks and stand and be ready to hunt and have a bunch of guys walk through like you would in shotgun season In muzzle loader season. You, you can pretty much count on you might bump into someone, but they they'll they'll avoid you too. The muzzle loader guys tend to tend to try and avoid everybody else.
0: Okay. So, I mean when you're hardcore like yourself and you're like me, you do other things throughout the year, whitetail related. um, Have you talked to any of these landowners on the properties that you hunt about potentially putting in some kind of food plot or would that just be a waste of time because the other hunters on that property would would hunt
2: it too? So in mass, I've considered it and I've spoke to the landowner about it. Um, But rather than doing like a food source, I think the biggest thing, around here that people can do because putting in a food plot in the middle of the woods, it's, it it just doesn't seem to work around here. But what you can do is, you know, hinge cutting and and a little bit of like timber management, I think would go a lot further than putting in a food plot. And that's in Massachusetts and Connecticut on the other side of it. um, I actually do have permission this year. They have a 10 acre field in the middle of the property that just, they hay it every year, but it's just grass. And uh, I've actually got permission to use it as a, a food plot next year. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing that, but in mass, I think the biggest thing they could do because it's mostly hardwoods rather than introducing a a whole new type of food source, if, if I was going to do anything, it would be focus on timber management, getting rid of some trees that, that don't benefit the whitetail and allowing the acorn, you know, the, uh, the oaks to kind of grow bigger and put in some security bedding cover from predators and stuff like that. Right.
0: Okay. Um, that would, that would be nuts. Like I don't, I just, I've never, I've never really had to run into, I've never, I've never hunted the kind of pressure that you guys have to hunt where, I mean, even on the, the 300 acre farm that I hunt, when everybody's on it, I can still find my little nook and cranny and, and, or places that these guys don't go. And it just it baffles me. Maybe it's just something I'm gonna have to experience for myself someday to go to Michigan or go out east somewhere and try to you know spend a week hunting a, a high pressure property just to see what it's all about. It's one of those things I definitely can't relate to at this time. But man, I, I really give you you guys the props for going out grinding it out. I would I just feel I would get frustrated to the nth degree
2: it is very frustrating man I mean opening once it was opening day I was I went in at noon because I didn't like the wind in the morning for the spot I wanted to hunt as I'm walking in and the trail I look over and there's a guy sitting in a ladder stand like 30 yards off the trail I just kind of waved at him and kept going deep into you know deep into the property and it's just kind of like well that's one way to start the season just you know I'm hardly <laughs> even in the woods yet and I'm bumping into guys but I mean it's you take pride in it a little bit. That you know when you are successful, it makes it that much better. Um, you know, in bow hunting's got it's it's the ups and downs, the roller coaster. So as as low as you get sometimes, as frustrated as you get, you know, when you finally connect and you make it happen, it makes it that much more worth it. And and you take pride in it a little bit. You know, and if you find you know a big monster shed during shed season, I mean that's a victory. Um, you know, I found a you know my I have. T- Two match sets from uh, from a property, and you know one is that double drop tines buck. His set, he dropped it, and then that one that died. I have all of his, and it's like every time you find one that's like sixty inches or better, it's just like you can't help but just like swell with pride because you know that it wasn't easy getting to there. So y- you take a bit of pride in, in hunting out east. Um, i thought about going out to the west. I'm actually going to put in for an Iowa tag. I think uh, next year. But I just, I don't know if I can. I almost feel like I'm cheating on New England if I go anywhere else. Right, right.
0: Well, Jay, man, I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on the podcast and, uh, you know, talk about uh, the East Coast and talk about your hunting strategy and the pressure and all that. I, I really appreciate it.
2: Well, thanks for having me on here, man. I appreciate it too.
0: And there you have it. Huge shout out to Jay for coming on the show, taking time out of his day to share his story of uh, hunting in the Northeast with us. Huge shout out to the partners, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Exodus Stroke Cameras, and DeerLab.com. Be sure to go visit those sites, guys. And uh, especially for DeerLab, sign up for one of their uh, free 30-day trial memberships. Other than that, Remember, we have a giveaway going for an Exodus trail camera and a free subscription to Deer Lab, so uh, go listen to the last podcast we did to to learn how to win. If you guys don't already follow me on social media, I put a lot of uh, cool stuff out on there, so... And I ask a lot of questions, uh, and I love, to, I love to hear your feedback. So if you guys are a listener of the podcast, and I ask, let's say, uh, a gear question. what For example, this uh, last question I asked was, what products would you like me to, what companies would you like me to interview in 2017? So you guys did, you know, there's a, a ton of great feedback. But what I want you to do when you do it is actually tag that company in that comment. Let them know that you're interested in having them come on this podcast. Also, go to their Facebook page and say, Hey man, we want you to come on the Nine Finger Chronicles uh, podcast. And I would absolutely love to have each and every company in the hunting industry as far as uh, bow hunting is concerned. I don't know if I'm ready to jump into the gun side of things yet just because i'm not familiar with guns um and i'd love to get all those companies on on the podcast uh go to itunes leave a review if you like this podcast i'd love to hear from you and uh, guys there's just a little bit of hunting season left especially in iowa if you get the opportunity to get out there good luck be safe and wear your damn safety harness have a good weekend